Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. From time to time, I choose the psalm as our primary scripture lesson for the day, the one I'm going to preach the sermon about. Because I don't always preach about them, the psalms may seem to some of you like an unnecessary afterthought in the bulletin on some days, especially when you compare it to the great stories of the Old Testament or Jesus' parables in the Gospels. But the Psalms are some of the best biblical material we have. Psalms are the recorded thoughts of regular people like you and me who are struggling with their faith, trying to make sense of it. In the Psalms, these ancient people ask questions about the character of God. What is God like? And how does God act? Pastors hear people ask these same questions when they make a visit to talk to us. They ask difficult questions like, why is God doing this to me? And why isn't God answering my prayers? People also explore the character of God in happier ways. They express joy when something that has been difficult finally starts to get easier and make sense. So they say things like, I'm so grateful to have lived through that. Or, I now know that God has been with me all along. The Psalms are some of the most relevant material we have in the Bible because they are the Bible's record of people exploring the character of God, asking these questions, saying a long, long time ago all of the same things we still say today. Jesus quotes the Psalms all the time. In one famous instance, many of you will remember, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quotation. It's from Psalm 19. And that quotation, if you read it in Psalm 19, continues, Why, God, are you so far from helping me? I cry, but you do not answer. Modern people think these same thoughts. Last week, I read a story about a man named Abu Sami. During the ongoing Syrian war, this professor from Aleppo University barricaded himself in his home in Aleppo and lived there like an urban Robinson Crusoe, surviving only on dry food and whatever he could grow in his little courtyard. He collected and boiled rainwater, and he read his collection of books to keep himself from going crazy while the war raged on right outside the door. In December, when the Syrian army recaptured Aleppo and the, the fighting stopped within the city, Abu Sami crossed the threshold of his home and walked outside for the first time in four and a half years. 
The carnage had come to an end in his neighborhood, but the city is absolutely decimated, and the violence in his country rages on still. The context of Abu Sami's story is incredible. But as I read that conclusion about him crossing the threshold, it occurred to me that parts of this story are not so rare. Because even in our very own congregation, there are elderly and infirm members of our church who have not crossed the threshold of their own homes in months and even years. And there are others whose lives are consumed by grief or addiction or pain of some kind that goes on and on and on. All of these people, they each have their own reasons for crying out words like the ones in that ancient scripture, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? I cry, but you do not answer. Whatever your situation, wherever you live, the Psalms are real prayers for real people. Many of the Psalms were written in happier times when life makes more sense. They're not all about suffering. The one we read together this morning is one of those. Psalm 8, it begins, O Lord our Sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. These are not words about suffering, about, but about times when life is beautiful. So beautiful that, but that we can't but help stop in our tracks and take notice and say thank you to God. These are words for a hike along the rim of the Grand Canyon or a glimpse of the northern lights. There are words to think about when, through God's grace to us, we, like God, have been able to create something. Perhaps you've felt this way when you've written a poem or when you've planted a garden. Maybe you've cultivated a friendship over decades and been thankful for the way that relationship has seen you through it all. Many people will tell of the inexplicable feeling of joy and awe the very first time you hold a child in your arms. Any of these things are enough to make one say, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalm goes on to say, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? But you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. We experience the feelings that we do, amazement and joy, as well as horrible suffering and abandonment. 
we experience these things precisely because we are made a little lower than God. This is what separates us from all the rest of creation. Just like the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, we are all God's creations, God's handiwork, but human beings are the only ones who have minds to ask questions about how and why it all works. God seems mysterious when times are hard. Other times, God seems to be a presence right beside or even inside of us. Sometimes God seems to have forgotten all about us, and other times God seems to be walking right next to us as we hike the rim of the Grand Canyon or hold a child in our arms. Human beings are the ones who are simultaneously blessed and cursed with the capacity to wonder about where God is and who we are in relationship to this God, why we are here, and what God is trying to do with us. People write psalms. Human beings write psalms because we cannot help but ask these questions. One of the most intriguing verses of the Psalms is that question, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? This question voices the amazement we feel, not only that God is incredible, but that God takes notice of us. Even in a vast world where our lives are so short and we are so very small, God knows every one of us by name. God never loses track of a one of us. And yet this idea of having God take notice of us, even this is not a simple idea because being noticed by God doesn't always feel good. In the book of Job, Job, who must have known this psalm, actually makes fun of this verse in the psalm, turns it on its head. When Job has lost his home, his family, and finally his health, Job says this to God, Do not human beings have a hard service on earth? God, I wish you would let me alone. And then Job asks, what are human beings that you make so much of them, that you set your mind on them, that you visit them every morning and test them every moment? The writer of Psalm 8 may be thankful that God watches over human beings, but Job, who is suffering, Job wonders if things might get better if God would just forget about him and leave him alone. And even within the joyful Psalm 8, the writer knows that life isn't always easy. In verse 2, he thanks God for working to silence the enemy and the avenger. The writer feels that God has dealt kindly with him, but the silencing of enemies and avengers acknowledges the truth that those threats are out there 
in the first place. We wouldn't need God's protection so much except that there are things in this life to fear. In the midst of all these different situations and the confusion that results from trying to make sense of God, our tradition keeps trying to come up with explanations. I call them explanations because they're not really answers. The problem continues and will continue that God sometimes seems unknowable and distant and other times seems caring and close at hand and we can't seem to control which one. We can't answer that problem. But there are some attempts at explaining and one of them is called the Doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity is a doctrine. Let's be clear about that. It's an explanation or a theory that was introduced by theologians. The Bible never uses the word Trinity to describe God. It just makes sense to a lot of people. It has over time to look at what God does in the Bible and to describe it by use of this doctrine, this idea, the Trinity. Sometimes God is the creator, like in Genesis chapter 1, a heavenly parent like the father in the story of the prodigal son. Other times, God is like Jesus, the teacher and healer, the one who tells us stories like the one in the prodigal son in order to help us to understand the one who dies for us to show how much God loves us by laying down his own life for our sins. And the Holy Spirit is the enduring presence of God in the church and in each of our own lives. Sometimes we feel it when we're walking at, next to the Grand Canyon. Other times we feel it prodding us as Jesus did to serve the poor, the vulnerable, the oppressed. All three of these qualities of God appear time and time again. Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Theologians call it the Trinity. This is the part of the sermon where I could have used a fidget spinner. A fidget spinner, for those of you who don't know, is kind of the newest version of a child's top. It's a fascinating toy that everybody wants to get a hold of right now. It's a little three-pronged toy with a spinner in the middle. It's got circles on each side, and when you spin it, those circles seem to disappear. It becomes one disc, and you can see right through the holes, and you can do all kinds of tricks with it. Well, there was a joke that went around on the Internet this week. It started on a playful Catholic website, and it claimed that Pope Francis talked about the Trinity in a sermon last week and explained it using his fidget spinner. And according to this fake article, which took Facebook by storm in many places, the, the Pope might have said, I can use my aluminum tri-fidget spinner to reveal the mysteries of our God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As the spirit
spinner spins faster. The three arms seem to become a single disc. And yet they maintain their individuality. It is one and yet three. This internet bit was a fun piece of fake news, but it highlights something important about the way people think about the doctrine of the Trinity. Many of us, if we spend any time thinking about the Trinity at all, we are usually concerned with trying to understand or explain it. We try to find a fancy analogy or a simple one, like a fidget spinner or water, which manifests itself in solid, liquid, and gas. I'm not sure that those explanations really matter. The purpose of the Trinity isn't to explain God. In fact, it might be more about explaining the way we respond to God. Sometimes God seems magnificent, wise, and just, close at hand and reliable to count on. And other times God seems distant and a mystery, and to us that seems unfair and wrong. The Trinity is one of many ways our tradition acknowledges that though God stays the same, God may appear a lot of different ways to us. And sometimes those different ways seem to contradict one another. It's in the character of God to not be easily explained. And the Psalms remind us of that. Whatever we may be feeling toward God, like the psalmists do, it's okay for us to express those feelings, whatever they are. Because whatever God is, God certainly seems to be strong enough to withstand our shaky faith and our easy criticisms. God just keeps on loving us all the same. So, people of Knox Church know this. You are part of a rich and ancient tradition in which people pray to God and do so in times of incredible joy and deep human tragedy. They have always done it, and they always will. For it's how we cope with the mysteries of God as we wander through the world as creations a little lower than God. The good news is that God can take in all of our anger and impatience and despondency. Whatever you need to bring to God, God can receive it. For God has created you out of love. God gives dignity to human beings by creating us with the capacity to ask deep and difficult and meaningful questions about who God is and who we are. God further dignifies us by listening to those questions. And I believe that one day we will get the answers we seek when our majestic God welcomes us home.